0: Good
1: afternoon.
0: Good afternoon. You are now listening to The Rook Show.
2: The concrete street, We sleep to the one that keeps peace. May you meet no defeat. Blow the heat on the beat. Yeah, wanna know. Sorrows and grief to the chief who deceives through the deep. May you sleep in the deep. fire your fleet to send the earth deep. No, 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 it. no, it ain't sweet. That's why I'm hustling in these streets. I'm still praying for the ones with no food to eat. i never let it be me dreaming on the concrete. Concrete. Lord, may, them say life is hard like concrete, it's a jungle out the road and everyone sees. no views watch them that leave, when you go out in the world I pray you make it warm in one piece, cause life is hard in the concrete, oh, that's why we chant with the heartbeat, no sheep to the slaughter, no, 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 no. ain't this sweet, that's why I'm hustling <laughs> with no food to eat, Oh, God, never let it see me streaming on the concrete. Never saw itself dreaming But he called itself leaving So he brought himself deep into the eye Wide focused on the sky he's in Flew a thousand demons screaming There will be no concrete destiny for me God never let it be No concrete destiny for me This ain't sweet That's why I'm hustling I need to I'm still praying for the one with no food to eat Go back! concrete concrete Dream never will it be. I'm on roots, stay firm like the evergreen trees. Powerful and positive, forever energy. See, check the television screen to the radio. Everything, stream we ground with the music. Didn't get a thing free. We made the dream real working, and make it CD. This year I get a sweet, and that's why I was filling in these streets. I'm still praying for the ones with all food to eat. Oh God, never let it be me. Dreaming on the concrete. I am. I am. I
3: am. You're listening to The Rook Live on the Keys One O Seven Network.
0: Okay, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Rook Show. We have our guest live on the line. Ms. Tony Carter. Your mic is live.
3: Hi, how are you?
0: All right and yourself Good to hear your voice. I
3: always will. you too, sir
0: All right all right how are you doing today how How is everything um, how How do you feel? Oh, I'm feeling a
3: lot better. It's uh, quite hot in Chicago, but other than that, all is well. No reason to complain.
0: Hmm. I know that's right. I know that's right. Well, before we get started, I want to give the listening audience an opportunity to kind of get a feel for who you are and what you represent. So, if there's any background information that you would like to share so that people can get an idea of what you represent before we go into your interview. That would be greatly appreciated.
3: Okay, great, and thank you so much for having me on today. Hi, listening audience. I'm Tony L. Coleman Carter, and I'm the energetic culture, inclusion, and diversity subject matter expert and HR consultant for a global high-tech company. I'm a change champion who collaborates with business leaders to create an environment to empower and engage others in order to achieve a global competitive advantage. I also help to partner to create, to develop, and to manage the culture, inclusion, and diversity initiatives while providing inclusion awareness and governance for our six global business councils. I've worked in corporate America for 20 years, and I'm the former deputy mayor for the village of Hanover Park
0: wow that that um that's a lot that's a lot and and you went so fast it was almost overwhelming if you can break down some of that information that you just shared that would be greatly appreciated um <laughs> currently what is it that you do on a day-to-day basis um in the position well, that you just expressed
3: My full-time job, I'm the subject matter expert for a global technology company based out of Schaumburg, Illinois. I've actually been working for them, it'll be 20 years, next month. Uh, On a day-to-day basis, I help create, develop, and manage cultural inclusion and diversity initiatives. At the end of the day, really what I do, Mr. King, is I help to create high-performing teams. You know, a lot of times not only in business environments but non-for-profits, any place you have a group of people, it's just that, a group of people unless you're really producing something that's significant. So the main reason why my position exists is to make sure that the teams that we create and continue to create are not just teams, they're not just groups, but they're high-performing teams. Because you know when you have a high-performing team, you'll generally have innovation, creativity, and additional productivity. So Monday through Friday, pretty much, that's what I do on a daily basis. There are probably 15 other things that I do on a part-time basis only because I'm highly involved in a community and have them for probably the last 15-plus years. Um, I help manage our homeowners association here and have done that for the last probably 15 years. Um I uh, teach part-time probably three or four times a year because just based on my schedule and the amount of work that's required to run a, um efficient, high learning environment, it's really complex. So usually I don't teach any more than three times a year, but when I do, I really enjoy it. The one thing that brings me Lots of excitement is being able to change the thought processes of the next generation of people. So, on a daily basis, pretty much, Mr. King, that's what I do.
0: As well as being a mother, right?
3: Yes, I've been a mother now for the last 27 years. I have a 27-year-old. Her name is Candace. She actually is getting her master's in public administration on August the 3rd from Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville. My middle kid, John, he has an associate's degree from Harper College in Palatine. He majored in law enforcement and criminal justice. And then I have a two-year-old. So as we can see, 27, 26, and God has jokes after 40. So it's a real <laughs> challenge
0: these days. It really is. But that's one of the reasons why I um, I consider you a woman of power because of the things that you have overcome the things that you have accomplished and the works that you have in progress. So when you, when you humbly, um, deny the fact that you don't have any power, that that's one of the reasons or several of the reasons why I, uh, give you that label and that title, because that is truly a powerful, um, human being that is capable of juggling all of those different balls without dropping them. So I take my hat off to you and, um, I have a, a, a huge amount of respect for you. Um, you, for, you left out one of the major things that I'm very familiar with you from, and that is your walk um, of faith in the ministry that you carry on a daily basis.
3: <laughs> yeah, I guess because, see, for me, I'd rather let my work speak for me As people come in contact with me and engage me, I like for them to create their own thoughts, really, about who I am. For me, when you have to go around saying, oh, I'm this, I'm that, or I'm the other, to me I question, are you really secure and confident in who you are? So part of that is why a lot of times people sometimes don't even know the number of things that I do or the level of influence that I have in multiple areas is just because, for me, just let my work speak for me. But, yes, I actually um, have been in ministry now since 1995, and um, I just consider it a part of who I am and what I do. So it's no separate thing or no different thing. It's really just who Tony is. It's a part of me.
0: Okay, that's that's very humble of you um, to say that, but you are very much um, actively involved um, on a daily basis in being um, a person of faith, and mm-hmm. that alone is, is a major accomplishment because it's not very easy to carry your cross on a, on a daily basis, I'm sure.
3: Yeah, it's definitely difficult uh, sometimes in more ways than one. But what I've learned over the 20-plus years that I've been walking with God is that there is nothing that he allows to come our way that he either hasn't prepared us for, is going to prepare us for, and most certainly is going to take us through. So. To me, honestly, it's just another thing that I have to get done, and I really don't think much about it. I just do what I have to do. I guess that's probably the best way um, to sum me up in general is I just do what has to be done.
0: Mm-hmm. And especially doing what you do, I'm sure that that's a very um, high-stress position that you hold um, at your job on a daily basis, and I'm sure you want to cuss people out at least two or three times a day. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because before I actually met God, I mean, I've been in church all my life for the most part because my maternal side is Catholic and so every week we went to church, so that's okay. But when I really met God it was probably two weeks before my nineteenth birthday and literally I kill I kid you not, that's the last time that a cuss word has slipped out of my mouth. And before then, I could cuss the paper off the wall. Now, I can tell you, there have been a couple of times over my walk where some people have really, really just got on my nerves, and I've really, really wanted to uh, tell them a few things. But uh, cussing really isn't one of them, only because, to me, it doesn't really solve anything. I mean, a lot of times when you cuss somebody out, what happens? You just excite more anger in them. You get more angrier tempers flare, and then things happen that you don't want to. So, yeah, I do get upset, I do get angry, but I always try to manage it in such a way, whereas when people leave that they don't question who I am or who I'm supposed to be, because, you know, that's the first thing they'll say is, hmm, some Christian, she's supposed to be. Hmm, that's an interesting pastor's wife, don't you think? So all those things always have to come into play whenever I'm out and about. The other thing, King, that helps me, too, It's because I work for a large multinational. What a lot of people don't realize is when you go into these organizations, they have code of conduct and they have code of ethics. And so you really can't afford to behave one way in the work environment and another way outside the work environment. You really need to be consistent because if you who represent this company, even when you're not working, do something that damages their reputation or their image, that could cost you your very job. So a lot of times I think that people really don't think things through and that we really need to ask ourselves, if what I'm getting involved in, does it impact me in an hour, in a day, in a year, in five years, or in 10 years, and if what you're involved in or what you're getting so upset about doesn't impact you in five or 10 years, to me, King, It's not worth my time, effort, or energy. You have to really do something that's going to impact me in a negative way for me, personally, to get upset or to, you know, want to tell you something.
0: Hmm. Okay. Okay. That's very interesting. So... You have a book that you have written. You you left that out as well. There's so many things that we probably can add on to something every time I ask you a question um concerning your comp your accomplishments. But you have this book that you have written. Mm-hmm. When Trouble Finds You.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: A very interesting title. How did you come up with that title?
3: Well, you're right. It's an interesting title because when I started writing When Trouble Finds You, it was actually 12 years ago now. I knew at some point because I was a teen mother that I wanted to leave something that would guide young mothers to come behind me because what a lot of people may not realize is a lot of times teen mothers go through a lot. Um, You're ostracized at school you have pressures at home, you're constantly being talked about in a negative way, uh, people are always assessing you or saying what you're not going to do or now what you're not capable of doing. And really, if you bog down under the pressure, you could really find an excuse to go from and do nothing with your life because you've done this thing, right? So I knew yeah. years yeah. ago that I needed to leave something that would encourage teen mothers to know that they could make it no matter what they've done in their life. So I kept writing and writing and writing and writing and writing, but never really creating something that I really wanted to present to the public. So a couple years ago, I think it was actually 2009, I was attending an event with our chief human resource officer. So I got there about 30 minutes before she was scheduled to speak, and the guy was closing out his lecture. At the end of it, he gave everyone who attended one of his books. And so I took it home and I read it and I said, oh, wow, this is great. And this is exactly what I'd like to do with my book. So I called the organization who uh, helped him with his book, Roundtable Companies, and started discussions with them. And I told them at that point I wasn't really in a position to move forward, but i called call them back when I was. And so that was two years later that I picked up the phone and I said, Hey, I'm ready to move forward. What's the steps? What's the process? What we need to do? So that's kind of how um, we started to see a shift. But at that time, I didn't realize it was a shift because I came in with a pre manuscript because I'd already been writing for so long. I came in with a title already, which was You Could Make It Too. But somehow, during the process between the interviews and the continuation of the script, I told one of my friends one day, I said, you know what, I think this title that I've been carrying around for probably a decade at that point um, is too elementary for what we're creating. So I began to think of other names that could replace it because I just didn't think it was matching what was being created. So I came across a couple, but it's it's really difficult because when when you're doing something of this magnitude, you want to create something that doesn't conflict with others but something that's unique to you and to what you're trying to do. So I pondered a couple of names, and one that I really liked was When Life Happened. But when I did a Google search on it, It was already taken. Someone else had already had a book with that title, although it wouldn't have been exactly the same as mine. I just didn't want, you know, people to Google looking for me and then finding other people. And to me, that was just such a time waster, right? So I continued to ponder, and then the two names that stuck out with me was this particular one, When Trouble Finds You, and then the other one, which was What the Hell Happened. Because after... Chapters 1 through 5 were created and developed, and I really had the opportunity to go back and take a deep look at the manuscript and at my life, I just said to myself, oh, my God, what happened here? What the hell happened, actually? Because how could you allow a kid to go through so much stuff before they're even 10 years old? And so I really began to ponder and think that, Instead of You Can Make It Too, the title of the book should have been What the Hell Happened. But what I realized from talking to people in my network and close friends was that although it was a very intriguing title and would get them to click on it right away, the one key target segment that I was going to try to reach was the young people. And I just didn't feel like the schools neither parents would get past a title like that mm-hmm. at the end of the day. That's how it got cut from the final selection process, and which is why today you see the book title, When Trouble Finds You. And actually, I think, Mr. King, it's, it's a pretty deep-fitting title because it's rhetorical. So what do you do when trouble finds you? And I know sometimes people think, well, I'm all good, I've had a great life, but you know what? Sometimes things happen, and I tell people, even though you may have, you know, gotten to 20, 25, 30, 35, I guarantee you, if you keep on living in some form or fashion, trouble will find you. And a lot of times people think, well, trouble only finds people who gets in trouble. That's not always true because one of the most recent examples we have of that is the Boston Marathoners. What were they out there doing? They were out there simply running a race for a good cause. And what happened? Trouble found them because you had people that were troubled themselves that came and caused havoc in their life. I mean, trouble has found them. And then think about the crash that happened last night, uh, Flight 214. On that flight team were two young people traveling to the U.S. for summer camp. Now, they're gone because a pilot, from what we can tell now, and all the data isn't out, but did a miscalculation and didn't allow the autopilot uh To guide him as he landed Now we'll find out more about this in months to come But at the end of the day These two girls are gone And their parents Are left with grief And heartache and pain And probably a ton of questions Because I know When my dad died at seven You know initially I was thinking oh, I don't have a dad anymore Right, in all the times I think little girls, they grow up thinking, my daddy loves me. You know, if I don't mean anything else to anybody else in this world, I mean the world to my daddy. And I have become a daddy's girl. Now, although my mom and dad had separated a couple years before my seventh birthday, which was the last time I saw him about two weeks before I died, I just remembered standing outside, And, you know, him preparing to leave and me, of course, not wanting him to go. But, you know, parents, they're so wise. (laughs) He said, well, your birthday's coming up in two weeks, Tony. What do you want? And so immediately my mind shifted from, oh, I don't want Daddy to leave to a bike. I really wanted a bike for my seventh birthday. So, of course, he told me he'd bring me that back in two weeks. And I guess in my little seven-year-old mind, I'm like, okay, well, I better help and let him go because uh, the quicker he goes, then the quicker he comes back, Right. So never realizing that two weeks later, my dad would be gone. And immediately I would start having nightmares and bad dreams and just scary things because my dad would always just appear to me in these types of, um, you know, visions and things would just leap out of my imagination. It was was such a scary and emotional and trying time for me. And because my mom and my stepmom were so busy fighting over, who was going to get the money and who was going to file the lawsuit and, you know, who was going to get the flag because my dad was a veteran, no one focused on us. So here I am with a bunch of emotions. I don't know how to express them. I don't know how to release them. And I'm just all torn up inside and no one seems to care. And that begins my anger with God, with my dad, and with myself because At the time, I didn't understand, and no one sat me down to explain to me that although my dad was gone, it wasn't his choice. I mean, he went in the hospital to have his tonsils taken out, and they gave him the wrong anesthesia. So he never came out. So it wasn't like a dad who walks off and leaves his kids and never comes back for them. But in my mind, somehow, I was just mad at him because he left. He said he was coming back. And he never did. And now here I am all alone with no one to talk to me or to help me process through these feelings. So not only was I mad with my dad because he didn't come back, but then I became mad with God. Because how do you, such a loving God, such a caring God, and, you know, we're only taught the good things about God when we go to Sunday school and Bible study, right? We never, for the most part, are taught about bad things happening to good people just because of the evil world that we live in. So I became mad at God for many, many years. And as I became a teenager, I began to rebel um, on going to even church. And at one point I lived across the street from our home church, and I would not set foot in it because I was so angry with God. I was so mad. I was just, oh, I can't even explain a king. But what I do know is that someone had been paying attention to me, that they probably could have cut off a lot of pain and a lot of hurt mm. and a lot of anger a lot sooner than mm. it got cut
0: off. Mm. When you say if somebody was paying attention to you, what do you mean by that? Paying attention to what?
3: I think parents should know their kids so well that when something's going on with them, they can be checked it and pick it up. No one had that kind of relationship with me. No one.
0: Hmm. And what could have been done if, if someone would have, what would you have liked to been done if someone would have picked up on that? How, how would you have wanted to be paid attention to?
3: Well, I mean, think about it. If someone that you love notices, even if it's the smallest thing, that you're just having a bad day and they detect in your voice that something's wrong. They don't know what, but they know something's wrong with King. What what, what generally happens if they say, you know what, Anthony, I've noticed that something's different about you today. Are you okay? Is everything okay? Immediately, even if you're not comfortable sharing with them what you may be struggling with at that point, in your heart, you crack at least a small smile because someone cared enough about you to notice that you were hurting and that you needed some kind of help or support. And I would say that men are probably a little different than women because women are generally created to be nurturers, and we have such a sisterly bond, and that's why I think when you see us, we're, like, all up in each other's face. We're so happy to see each other if we haven't seen each other in a while, we're hugging, we're kissing, and we're just catching up. I mean, I think that when people express that genuine, sincere care about who you are as a person, it can make a big difference in your life. And I think that's what could have happened to me. Initially, I would have been able to share with people that I was having nightmares, that I was dreaming weird things, that things were leaping out of my imagination. And I just think that would have you know, prompted someone to get me into counseling so that someone could help me process these emotions.
0: Hmm. Wow. So you don't think that the things that you went through was something that you had to go through in order for you to be the person that you are today? You feel as though those things could have been avoided and you would still be the same person or a different person than what you are today?
3: You know, that's a complex question because now what you're talking about is a predestination. And I know that a lot of people in the faith world, you know, really believe that we're predestined to be things, to do things, and um, that our life can't take a turn unless it's the will of God. And I'm going to have to say right now that them and me probably won't agree on the next five or ten minutes of our discussion because although I don't think if I had not went through those things that I'd still be the same person, I don't believe that having my cousin molest me at seven, my mom leaves me with people who do bad things to me. Um, people doing bad things to me for many, many years was the will of God. I think those were evil people that I came in touch with, and I think that if some adults had paid close attention to the people that they were allowing around their children that, no, I wouldn't be the same person I am today. I would only hope and pray, King, that I'd be better because it wouldn't have taken me 30 and 40 years to process through all of this hurt and pain that I've kept bottled up for many, many, many years. A person who's walking around with a lot of hurt, with a lot of pain, they are not going to be whole and healthy. And the one thing I can say about that is when things – that happened to me, happened to people. The one major thing that it takes away from you is your ability to trust people. And when you walk around on this earth and you trust no one, I know a lot of people think, hey, I'm not trusting nobody but the good God Almighty above. Guess what? They're going to miss out on a lot in life, and they're not going to experience the true blessings of coming in contact with good people who are here to help us to become. Better and greater Because we don't trust So no I wouldn't be the same person That I am today I could only hope and pray That I'd be better By not having to go through All that pain and agony And all the hurtful relationships Because I do think that Having went through all that stuff It set me up To receive dysfunctional love As quote unquote love And the love that I needed And that I deserved Or that that was all I was good enough for So no I wouldn't be the same person I am today. I actually think I'd probably be a lot better provided other bad things would not have happened to
0: me how How could you possibly be any better than what you are today i that that <laughs> that that really is is unimaginable um but i wanna i wanna touch on something that you that you breathed over so smoothly and when we spoke earlier I told you that this is something that I wanted to um, to dig into a little bit because it's something that people, especially us black people, do not address and I think it has a much greater effect on our society as a whole. You, you mentioned something about being molested at an early age. Um, mm-hmm. If you can share with us how that affected you and, and what made that a part of your life that is, is so significant today?
3: Well, here's the thing. So you got to remember, when my dad died at seven, I was already in an emotional wreck and was continuing to have these nightmares and bad dreams and already struggling with does anyone love me, does anyone care, I was already in a place of... Um, Restlessness and spiritually disconnecting from God. I was already there. Now, fast forward to my mom and stepdad having to work. And my stepdad was a general contractor, so generally he worked long hours Monday through Saturday pretty much. And my mom, she was a uh, manager for McDonald's, so you know how those restaurant schedules are. They change all the time. She can work early one day, late the next day, all day. (laughs) So it um, it was just what they needed to do at the time, but sometimes it left us in positions that weren't the best for me and my siblings. So in the midst of me struggling with all these emotions after my dad died. My mom and stepdad working quite a bit. My neighbor downstairs, her kids were asked to watch us when both my mother and stepfather were out for whatever reason. And it was during those times that they would fondle and play around and mess around and have us, you know, doing different things with them that wasn't appropriate For kids our age, and really introducing things to us that I'm sure no parent in their right mind would want their kids to be introduced to at such an early age. So now you got that, then you got the neighbors' kids downstairs, and there were three of them. So already I'm being introduced to um, same-sex relationships, right, from very early on because. Although Andre was a guy, Penny and Pam were both girls, okay? So already that's been introduced into my life. (laughs) Then fast forward to when the celebration does come up. Stop
0: stop for a second. When you say same-sex relationships were entered entered into your life, what do you mean by that, through direct contact or through exposure? Yes, yes, Mm
3: yes. Yes, because... Um, And I talk about this in the book in chapters one or two. I can't remember exactly which chapter. It's probably two where um, the girls, um, when they would babysit us, yeah, would take us um, in the closet, specifically me, and they would want us to rub on them and feel on them and do things that adult people do uh, in the bed. And I'm pretty sure most parents would not want their kids in those types of environments. And so, yeah, so at an early age, you had the brother who was doing similar things, and then you had the girls. So very early on, I was introduced to same-sex relationships. And I'm just not sure that most parents would want that kind of activity going on with people that they quote-unquote trust. They would probably never even believe that these things are happening to their kids outside of their presence. And, you know, the one thing that they would do would be like, if you tell anybody, then we're going to beat you. You know, we're going to. And, you know, they did. They were already hitting on us and punching us. And I I just don't know. I know that parents need help, King. Don't get me wrong. Parents need help. We can't do it alone. We need to trust people. But there's got to be some kind of system with how we determine who it is. We trust our most precious Kids with, I mean, I doubt that my mother ever thought that these kids were doing this kind of stuff. I'm not even sure that their mother knew what they were upstairs doing because the one thing about their mother, I always remember her being so nice and so sweet, but she had these bad kids. I tell you, they were just bad. Hmm. Hmm.
0: So, how did that affect you at that age? Because I'm assuming that this is something that you did not agree with.
3: Well, I think for me at that age it was very confusing
0: because
3: I'm not sure a lot of parents are talking to their kids about sex at that age. I really can't remember anyone having a conversation with me as I grew about sex, period. So for the most part, for me, it was just very confusing, because if you think about it, when I was born back in 1970s, they really didn't have any shows on that talked about alternative lifestyles or anything like that. Most of what you saw was the Brady Bunch couple, and then Lead it to Beaver, and in those shows, you still saw the parents sleeping in separate beds, for the most part. I think at some point, the Brady Bunch uh, mom and dad you might have saw in the bed together at some point, but you knew in your mind that at least you thought relationships were pretty much between girls and boys, right? And so if you did like someone, it was probably someone who was opposite from you. So for me, it just became very confusing as to, okay, <laughs> what what really is a relationship or is there a real definition? So that's kind of immediately when I began to struggle with. Okay. Hmm. Not too sure about this. But I knew it wasn't right, though, hmm. even when the boy was doing the wrong thing. I knew it wasn't right because, he. the part of what I knew wasn't right with him was because he was so much older, you know?
0: Mm-hmm, hmm So that wasn't your only experience with being molested at an early age. And, and I greatly appreciate you being candid enough to share this. Um, with us and and with the listening audience. If you need to take a break at any point in time, if it gets overwhelming, just let me know and we'll go to a commercial.
3: Okay, I appreciate that.
0: All right. um, That wasn't your only exposure to being molested, though, am I I right?
3: No, but those were the first, okay? And let me tell you something else, too. Once your kids started getting introduced to some things that you may not want them to see, particularly at such an early age. You really have to start sitting down having conversations. And I don't know what the appropriate age is for these discussions because we know that kids all develop at a different level and at a different time. And so whereas a kid might be ready to have a conversation about one thing at 12, they may not be ready for another conversation until 15. So that's why the parents knowing their kid is so extremely important. The reason why I bring that up is because we went to um, Catholic school in the night I can't think of the name of it right now. Um, and they're probably glad, but I'm sure it's not there anymore anyway now because of Katrina. But it was pretty much one of the largest parishes in that region, particularly for black people. And during school we met a girl who was being raised by, her grandmother, and she probably lived about ten streets away from us, but at some point you know she would come by our house and play, and we would go over to her house because if my mom or something couldn't get us on time, she only lived about two minutes away from the school, so it was a good place to make sure that your kids were safe um until a parent was able to pick them up. But that little girl had already been hurt and introduced to sexual premiscurity at an early age because she started fondling on me at an early age. And I tell you, there was one day we were sitting in church because at the time in Catholic school, you went to church like once a week, okay? I don't remember what day we went, but it was a systematic ritual. And actually, one day in church, she had her coat over our lap, and she was fondling me in church. And so, you know, I was sitting there looking, and I didn't know what to do or what to say, But I was just so, I I can't even explain how I felt. But, I mean, it's just parents have to be also sensitive about their kids, where they're at, and who they're allowing them to be around. Because you never know what's going on in some of these kids' places. And the one thing I know about me was, as I had kids, and they'll tell you, when we came to Illinois, we only had one cousin here, and his name was Mark. And I would not let them spend the night by anybody else's house. And Mark is one of the Hughes's and they were instrumental people in my life all through, from the time I actually was born on this earth until today. Mark decided to move to Texas probably about five years after we arrived in Illinois. Now, mind you, he talked us into coming to Illinois from Indiana because we were up in uh, South Bend. Well, it's so funny because my oldest kid, we were sitting there, Mark and his family came by to say goodbye to us, and we're all crying. And uh, my daughter looks up at me, and uh, I was like, oh, well, you'll see him again. It's going to be okay. She said, Mama, I'm crying because now I ain't got nobody else else that I can go sleep at. <laughs> I was cracking up. She made me laugh at that point because she realized about them moving to Texas, that she wasn't getting out of her mom's sight anymore That was it for her to stay in the night at anyone's house And I tell you Me and my kids, my older two We went around and around and around about that All of their childhood About why I wouldn't let them stay the night At nobody else's house And, and the whole time They were young There was probably one girl who stayed the night Over our house with Candace And one boy in their entire childhood And get this Um <laughs> When my daughter read my book earlier this year, she finally understood, which again came. I probably should have sat down and had a conversation with her about why I didn't want people stay at her house and why I didn't want them staying at other people's houses. But I just think I was just real too embarrassed to open up and share with them what had happened to me. And it's actually been this year that my husband and my two children, my older children, have actually found out everything that pretty much has happened to me. Before then, mm. they never even really knew.
0: Mm. And is there a reason why you kept that inside, or is it just, you know, your your way of surviving through, through the pain?
3: <clears throat> I think because
0: it's embarrassing for the
3: most part. Um, you feel a lot of shame and a lot of guilt, and mostly everyone that I've talked to who's shared their story with me since I've been you know, sharing my story with others, it's been the same thing. We just feel so ashamed. We just feel like people are going to look at us in a different way, that maybe they won't respect us uh, anymore because of these bad things that have happened to us. And I just realized this year, I kid you not, that I have no reason to be ashamed. If anyone's ashamed, it should be the people who've done this stuff. I didn't do anything, and particularly when my cousin molested me, he came and woke me out of my sleep. The only thing I had done that night was went to bed like my mother told me. But somehow in my little mind, it was all twisted to it was something I had done. And I just don't know as parents how we can make sure that our kids feel comfortable coming to tell us this stuff because, King, if you think about it, Most black people, and I know our audience is multicultural, and I'm grateful for that because the one thing I've learned through doing research is that the sexual molestation of children, it knows no race, it knows no gender, it impacts girls and boys of all races and nationalities, okay? So that's the one thing I want to make sure we don't disconnect the segment of our audience from because everyone's impacted by this, but... The reason why I bring up us as white people in general is because most of us go to the hairdresser, you know, some of us go every week, every two weeks, once a month, but generally we go to the hairdresser and the barbershops on a consistent basis. We talk about everything in those shops. We talk about the game. We talk about the series. We talk about so-and-so mama and daddy who got divorced. We talked about so-and-so daddy we saw at the, the restaurant with his girlfriend. Everything that comes to our mind is what goes on in these salons. But tell me, when's the last time you went to get your hair cut when you heard anybody bring up this topic of children being sexually abused? Today Uh I'm going to be 43. I'm going to be 43 in one month. I've not been to a hair salon today and have had this conversation brought up unless I brought it up, and I've only started bringing it up in the last year. But today, before then, I've never heard a conversation about this in my entire life in all the 40-plus years I've been going to the hairdresser. I've actually never heard a conversation came like this in my home about children who were being sexually abused and sexually molested. And maybe that's where we start at to create awareness uh, is in the homes with having people feeling free to talk about these kinds of things, to let victims know that they haven't done anything wrong and that if someone touches them in an inappropriate way, that they should alert someone right away. And then making sure that parents provide them the right security and protection when they do tell them these kinds of stories. And so maybe really that's where it starts, in our homes and in the salons, and in churches and nonprofits, wherever there are children. We need to start opening up these conversations so that they can feel free to talk about it.
0: Hmm. It, that's not something easy to discuss um, From your experiences Having gone through that And now sharing your experiences with people How does a dialogue like that Begin to be opened up?
3: I don't really know, King Other than to just say Have the discussion Just start it I mean maybe bring up when trouble finds you because in when trouble finds you when I saw the direction that it was going to take I got real strategic about the final the final preparation for it and we created a discussion guide as well as a lesson learned section to be a tool and a resource for people who deal with young people, whether it's school administrators or, you know, girls-to-boys clubs or, you know, churches or just anyone who comes in contact with young people to provide them with a tool to open up this discussion because the one thing I know is we need to start having them because until we do, we're not going to stop this epidemic. Until we allow people to know that you know, we're there for them. And no matter how difficult it is that they can share what they've been through with us, I don't think we're really going to see change in this area. But you're right, it's difficult. And I remember me and my executive editor, we probably had like three heated sessions over this very thing because she kept trying to push me into an area that I was very resistant in going to. And initially when – She started to ask me about this part of my life. I'd answer her question, and then I'd say, Well, but we're not talking about that. (laughs) But we're not putting that in the book. And she's like, Oh, okay, Tony. Well, well, okay, okay. And then at some point she'd be like, Well, Tony, blah, blah, blah. And I'd say, Katie, Katie, let me get back to you on that because I'm not real comfortable with that at this point. You know, and in my mind, I probably never was going to get back to her, honestly. But she continued to bring these kinds of discussions up until one day, you know, we just came to a head-on discussion and she said, Tony, listen, I understand this is kind of difficult for you, and I'm paraphrasing what she said. She said, but the audience is going to detect that you're not being authentic with them. They're going to detect that you're holding back something from them, and when they detect that, they're going to disconnect from you. So if you want to make sure that this book has the impact that you've been talking about it having, you're going to need to be really authentic and get real comfortable with what has happened to you in your life. And pretty much when she said it to me, I still didn't want to hear that, but I left away from that discussion with, okay, do I want to to provide a tool that's going to be really helpful and help change lives? Or do I really just want to provide a tool that's not going to do anything? It'll just be another book, another story. But it really doesn't have the impact that it could. So that's eventually how I was able to get past those points of discontentment and, um, you know, feeling very uncomfortable with talking about any of this. But I'm going to tell you, Kim, it took months. It took months and months and months and months. And And I still really wasn't ready to let go. I'm going to tell you something. It became easier for me when two things happened. One was when my team, we were talking about, you know, how we were feeling about um, where the manuscript was going. And at some point, a publisher, he was on a call to say, he said, well, Tony, how are you feeling? And I just began to tell him that I was extremely uncomfortable. (laughs) I'm a corporate employee. I got to go to work the next day after this book is released what are my colleagues going to think about me what are people going to think about me um and so he said you know tony maybe what you should do is um have a conversation with several of your colleagues at work and just get their feedback for what you're saying just just talk to them and so of course I did and I uh, made an appointment. Actually, I got on the phone and called our chief human resource officer's uh, administrator, and I said, hey, this is what's going on, and I need to talk to her, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, well, she's not here, but if you say it's important and uh, it's personal, I'm sure she'll make time to meet with you. Let me track her down and let me tell you where to go. So sure enough, she did, and I'm going to tell you, that's probably the only reason why I was able to have that conversation with her was because Corey put me in a spot to agree to do something that I really didn't want to do. And then I was thinking, okay, I'll call her administrator because it takes weeks and weeks and weeks to get on these people calendar anyway, and so then I'll know I can leave it alone at that point. But when all the pieces started to line up and then she met with me that very day that I called, I had no choice but to go through with the discussion, but still, trying to get out of having the verbal piece, because that's what we're talking about right now, how difficult it is for people who've been through this to share stuff. I show up at the meeting and give her a piece of paper to read, King. I still don't even tell her. I print the introduction mm. and take it to the meeting, and I let her read what has happened to me.
0: Mm. Mm.
3: So you're right. it's take... not easy.
0: All right. We're going to take a brief... Commercial break. Um, and when we come back, I want to go into some of the things that we spoke about earlier uh, when we talked in private, as far as how you being exposed to this activity led to you having an early pregnancy. And I want you to share with the listening audience your your twenty year theory of coming out of um, being a teen mother and, and poverty. Um, when we come back from a commercial break, we'll go into those. Uh, take take a moment to uh, catch your breath. We'll be right back uh, from a commercial.
4: Rafika Consultants and Services, LLC, is on the cutting edge of emerging technologies for designing online classes and providing face-to-face and virtual technology training or help with computer programs, web design, and graphic arts. We also provide biography writing services for websites, For more information, give us a call at 631-399-0149. That's 631-399-0149. The Fluffs present the alphabet, now found in paperback, sporting a five-star rating.
0: Okay, thank you guys for listening. We are live with Lady Toni Carter from the book When Trouble Finds You in a very riveting conversation that we are having right now. Um, Ms. Carter, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay. Um, Before we went to a commercial break, I opened up a subject, and I want everyone to know that we talked previous to you having come on to the show, and you let me know that it was okay to touch on some of these subjects. I'm not um, by any means forcing the this this conversation on you, am I? Oh, no, not at all. I want to
3: help some people.
0: Okay, okay. So if, if you can touch on some of the things that you share with me about teen pregnancy, and those issues, I would greatly appreciate that.
3: Yeah, I um, realize now that it, for me, was a correlation. And I know that a lot of people are different and different things impact different people in different ways. But earlier when I had mentioned... Um, You know, the fact that when you're in these unhealthy environments, you're being taught dysfunctional type of love, and you begin to believe that that's all you deserve or, you know, what you should get out of life. And for me, um, you know, having been through all this and never really sharing with anyone, what I was going through. Although, and you'll hear me say this probably multiple times on our call today, is that if someone had been paying attention to me, they should have been able to detect that something was seriously wrong with me and would have gotten me the help that I needed. So, because no one was paying attention to me, um, and all these bad things that happened to me, but of course, when the first guy comes along and tells you how much he loves you and all this kind of stuff, you know, it tends to send girls over their head. I don't know why we become so attached to those magical words, I love you. I don't know. Maybe it's just the way we're made or or cut to just need someone to just love us, to value us, and to appreciate us. So I um, got involved with this young man who – actually, you know, had been having conversations with me about sex for a long time. And um, when the right opportunity uh, presented itself, then, you know, um, the wrong thing happened, and out of it, my oldest was born. So I do believe that because I was always in a state of looking for someone to love me or to show me affection or to just want to be around me, that it was just so easy for me to allow uh, him to, at the end of the day, in my opinion, get what was his ultimate goal, because even though I had been molested multiple times, um, by the time I had met him, no one had actually, um, you know, did the wrong thing as far as down there. It had just been, you know, them using their fingers and their hands and touching and all that kind of stuff. But... My first relationship with him was um, quite an interesting one, and so it still baffles me as to whether or not that was the actual date when I got pregnant because it was, ah, they have to read the book for that king because it's just too much to talk about for me um, personally. But yeah. uh, we lay it all out for you in the book, and I just really think that because we tend to look for love in the wrong places because I think that people are not giving it to us, then there's a strong correlation between that. And the, the difficult thing with teen motherhood is that it really a lot of times puts teen mothers in a position where their lives just become harder. And it's not that they can't make it because they can. I did and so many others. But your life just becomes so much harder. I mean, I look at my oldest kid. This girl and been out of the country is planning to go out of the country again. Uh, By the time I was 27 years old, King, I hadn't been out of the country yet. I was still working very hard trying to come from a manufacturing um, background at that point on to administration. So her life is just 200 times better than the life I had at her age for the simple fact that she's decided to wait until she's ready Uh, to be a mother instead of becoming a mother at an early age like her mother. But I will tell you this, I am so glad every day that I chose to have Candace because when my mother found out that I was pregnant, she presented the option of abortion to me, but I was very, very resistant to it. I don't know why, but inside of me, I just knew that I couldn't kill my child. And in the back of my mind, King, I was always thinking, now I'll have someone to love me. I just knew that that kid was going to love me, and I was not going to let anybody take that kid away from me. And you know what? To this day, we have such a strong bond that it's really unbreakable. oh.
0: Mm. That's beautiful That's beautiful Hmm That's beautiful That's very beautiful You um You mentioned to me Something about Breaking the cycle of poverty When a young lady Has a child At a very early age Can you share with the listening audience Your concept of that
3: Yeah um A lot of times uh, what I've noticed is, and I haven't done research on this in quite a few years, but if you look around our community, specifically most of the kids that you see having babies when they're young are from underprivileged backgrounds. Now, when I say that, that doesn't mean that kids from your more middle class and upper class backgrounds aren't having sex, I believe. That is to the contrary. I believe they are. But I believe in a lot of cases, the kids that, you know, choose to, you know, go go on and have these kids, a lot of them are from underprivileged backgrounds. And so what happens is because they're already in a cycle of poverty, they may live in low-income homes or low-income areas, they just continue to stay there. And I tell you, a lot of times because they haven't been shown anything outside of their environment, they just think it's okay. Sometimes I've seen people think it's okay year after year after year to live someplace to collect government assistance on a consistent basis without trying to get out of that. And I know sometimes people think, well, I got everything I need. And and true, um, the way the U.S. system is set up, you do have a place to live, they generally provide enough um, stamps, is what I used to call them years ago. I don't know what they call them now. I think it's maybe a link card, but for you to eat well. And But if you look beyond that, what else do you have? I mean, a lot of times if you get a car or a car worth a lot of money or something like that, they don't want you to have that. They give you just enough to keep you below that poverty cycle and below that poverty line. And to me, why that's so critical for us is because if you look at us as a whole and look at a lot of kids who go to some of your largest public school systems in this country, when they're broke and underprivileged and underprovided for, the education is lacking. You have kids who just based on their zip code, because they're in these underprivileged, low-income areas that leave school. They can't write. They can't read. And so, King, where does that leave them? It leaves them unprepared for the future. And at the end of the day, I think, it doesn't have to be that way because even if we grew up in underprivileged areas, I did. My dad was from a one street town in a in a, in a, in a little in a little town called Dilo. It's probably twenty thirty miles from Jackson, Mississippi. But in its heyday, Dilo provided a lot of jobs for people and was a hub for. Um, um, agricultural environment back in that time, but since Dilo hasn't done anything probably in the last 60 to 70 years, so it's just a real small town, uh, doesn't have a lot going for it right now. And then if you fast forward to when my dad who was one of the first people in his family to get a college degree, he was the baby of I think six kids and there were seven, but One of the sisters died when she was a baby. He was the first one to get a college education. So he had ideas. He had, you know, a a way of thinking that was – he just knew that he needed an education, right? So once my dad died, and um, we were already living in, like, one of the worst projects in New Orleans, when we went back to Mississippi – We went to low-income places. And the education, it wasn't the best, but it wasn't the worst because we were in Catholic school for most of our life. And when we finally transitioned over to the public school, a lot of times we were uh, way ahead of where some of our classmates were. But still, when you go up in an area and they can't see anything beyond, you know, this check or this way of living or this party or getting our hair done the next week, they're really missing out on a lot that life has to offer. There are so many things that we can do for our children when we just have a little more resources in our hand. I mean think about one of your largest public school systems around. Kids may get three, four thousand dollars a year to spend on each pupil, but come out to your northern suburbs in Illinois, you've got one school district that's spending $12,000 per kid. Imagine, what do you think is going on in that school with three or $4,000 that's different from what's going on in that school who's giving $12,000 per pupil? Not only is your education better, but also your extracurricular activities, which we know come in handy, particularly when parents have to work and their kids are getting out of school at two or three o'clock in the evening. When I did um when I did some research team like last year as we were preparing to release When Trouble Finds You, do you know one of the reasons that a lot of kids have sex in their teenage years? Tell me what you think one reason could be.
0: Well fear pressure for one thing. Fear so pressure is one Mhm.
3: So you'll be considered what?
0: So that you'll be considered, you know, one of the cool kids. That's a big thing Mm -hmm. growing up. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, peer pressure is key. Here's the whammy because they're bored. Can you believe that? Mm. Kids are having sex because they're bored. (laughs) They're bored. So they're home. It's nothing to do because a person may live in an underprivileged area. There's no football camp. There's no after-school track. There's no after-school gymnastics. No, it's go home and you have to stay in that house until your mother comes and make sure if someone knocks on the door that you don't answer. So, I mean, how many of us as kids – how many of us listened to that? No, we let our friends came over, and when we knew it was time for our parents to come home, what did we do? We say, "Oh, our parent might be home." Now my mom came and went as she wanted, so we always had to be on the lookout. But <laughs> a lot of my friends, they knew. Like my friend Tonette and I spent a lot of time at their house. Miss Gamble got off at five o'clock from the legal aid. It took her about fifteen minutes to get home. So you know, anybody we had up in that house had to be leaving out that door about five or ten minutes to five before Miss Gamble got home. So nobody listens Uh to that. When you have kids that, you know, are at home by themselves and they're latchkey, I think it's one of the worst things we can do as parents. But I know sometimes we just don't have enough money to put them someplace where someone can watch us, which is why I do advocate for finding people that we can trust and people that trust us so we can trade off and leaving our kids in safe places so that they're not home unattended to doing the wrong things because they're
0: bored. Uh hmm be Before we go into some of the other topics, I want to ask you um because we mentioned earlier about having a conversation with our youth about um premature sexual activity, what are some of the signs that you can that that we can look for to to see if our kids have been tampered with in that manner
3: well Yeah, and that's why it's going to be important for kids to know, I'm sorry, important for parents to know their kids because the signs can be different. The one good thing about when trouble finds you, like I told you, when I saw the direction it was headed in, we put it together in a very strategic way. So the afterwards section, and, you know, a lot of authors use that section to show or tell about what the things they've done, what they plan to do in the future. I said, "Mm mm-mm, we're going to ask Dr. William Martin who's a psychologist by trade. Uh, He comes from, I'm going to say Loyola or Tulane Medical Center in New Orleans. And he also spent a lot of time working with police departments who had cases uh, with children who, been sexually abused, and right now what he's working on is bullying in the workforce. But I said all that to say this. We asked Dr. Martin to write the afterwords. What Dr. Martin has done in the afterwards section is give parents a tool that they can use to identify when their kids may have been sexually assaulted. And I think he breaks it down to something in age as young as two. So I do recommend parents who are interested in finding out what the real Finds Off from the Experts, pick up a copy of When Trouble Finds You. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Powell Books and Books A Million, and flip to that afterwards section because he makes some clear um, recommendations as to how you can tell that your kid has been involved in a relationship that they may have not have told you about. He also outlines how to get help for kids who may have, Um, gotten uh, abused and you may become aware of it at some point. He tells you what to do even when you suspect that a kid is being abused but you really don't have any, any hard concrete proof. He gives you steps that you can use to help make sure that all kids are protected whether they're yours or not. So I said all that to say this. I recommend people get the book and read the afterwards section because he is the expert but in my case I went from being a happy, inquisitive, bubbly kid to a mean, depressed, locked-into-myself kid, okay? So for a mother or a father who's paying attention to their kid, they should notice a personality shift. Now, I have a girlfriend. We've been friends for probably 20 years now who, when we were reading the manuscript before it was released last year uh, together on a trip when I was uh, down south for holiday she revealed to me that someone had sexually assaulted her as a kid. Now, she was different from me because she changed in the opposite way. So that's why it's important to know the personality of your kid because it can take on any type, shape, or form. And if you don't know your kid, you may just overlook it for something that may be rebellious or or they're just tired. When If you know their personality you can really detect when something's going on with them because there will be a major shift in it. Mm Mm-hmm. It's hard to Mm -hmm. see who you really are when you're hiding something, you know? Mm -hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you have any programs or anything like that that you um, participate in to be of assistance, or do you have any information that you can share with the listening audience that could be helpful to someone who is dealing with this issue and would like to get some assistance with their kids or or as an adult, you know? Or do you have any suggestions or recommendations to be of assistance in, in
3: Yeah, again, I recommend they get the book and go directly to the afterwards section because Dr. Martin outlines that in his section. He also talks about how this type of situation impacts us as adults and how we will relive it if we don't deal with it on um, milestone events in our life. He outlined that, so I'm glad you brought that back up, uh, Anthony, because he did put that in the book and I forgot about it. And he also tells us, who've been in these situations what to do. But what I've decided because you know, I'm a human resource consultant by trade. That's my that's that's what I love to do. That's my passion. That's where I'm growing my career is whoever contacts me for help in this, I will try to figure out where they're located and then to line them up with someone in their area that uh that they can trust. I know from my contacts here in the northwest suburbs in Illinois uh, I have a recommendation for a licensed uh, counselor who can help them in their area, and I'm happy to provide that information for anyone who reaches out to us via our website. But for the most part, I recommend they get the book and look in the afterwards section because Dr. Martin has details what parents can do for kids and then what people like us who have been abused can do for ourselves or how we may help our friends who may have been in this situation or who may get in this situation. Because one thing Dr. Martin outlines in that section is, even though a person themselves may not have been abused, they will be impacted by the abuse of the people who are around them. And I was like, wow, amazing. So here I am thinking that the only person really impacted in a negative way by what has happened to me is me. Mm Mm-mm. He says it impacts not only you, but the people around you. And so he offers help for them, too.
0: Can you give out your website address?
3: Yeah, it's uh, WTFU2.org. So it's the initials of the book, the number 2.org, WTFU2.org.
1: Okay. And it's actually and,
3: um, since you mentioned that since you mentioned that, Mr. King, it's actually some resources that are directly on that website for people in all kinds of situations, youth, um, homelessness, veterans. So we do have a pretty comprehensive list out there on that website. We have a lot of national numbers out there because we know our audience is broad based, but For people who live in Illinois, we have some direct resources that we have connections with linked on that site for you. So please visit it because you should find everything you need on it. It's WTFU2.org.
0: Okay. And they can also contact you directly through that website as well, right? Yes, they can. Okay. We're going to take a brief commercial break and come back with we, we we're going to talk about some of the accomplishments that you have achieved, um, not just here recently, but not too long ago as well. So hold the line for a second while we take a commercial break to give you a chance to catch your breath, and, and we'll switch the subject to um, some lighter um, events that have gone on in your life.
3: Okay, Thanks.
4: Fashions and gifts that bring out the best in you. Moon 107 is an online retail store featuring women's and men's clothing and a gift shop. The woman's shop features stylish tunics tools and accessories and offers the well-dressed woman an outlet to find the perfect gift for herself or for someone else. The men's shop offers classy French-cut shirts for the well-dressed.
0: Okay, welcome back. We have Lady Tony Carter um, live on the line, talking about some experiences that she has gone through, as well as sharing some excerpts from her book When Troubles Find When Trouble Finds You, which is available on Amazon.com by that title, as well as through her website. Um, Ms. Carter, if you want to give out the name of your website once again so the listening audience can go on there and check out the resources that you have, as well as your book is available on that website as well, right?
3: That's correct. It's uh, When Trouble Finds You. The web address is WTFU, the number two dot org. WTFU, the number two dot org.
0: Okay. Um, you have been involved in some political ventures, um, throughout mm-hmm. your life that um that I find very interesting, being the deputy mayor of I believe was it Hanover Park?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. How yes. how did you come to how did you come to be involved in in that that is that an elected office or is that something that you were um chosen to do?
3: No, it's elected. It's funny that you asked that question because I kind of always knew I would run for office, but I was thinking more so on the legislative side, something like Congress or the House. And I never really anticipated um, running for local council. I don't know why. It just never really crossed my mind. But I tell you this, one day I came home, and there was a note for me in my door. And the person asked for me to give them a call. So it was from one of the trustees at the time in our village. So I gave him a call, and he said he wanted to talk to me. He was going to run his own slate in the next election, and he wanted to make sure his slate was diverse, and he also wanted to diversify the village So he asked me um, to come and meet with him to talk more about the opportunity. So I met with him, and, um, you know, he told me about the things that were, in his opinion, not being handled right at our local level, and he asked me to consider joining his team. And with all the things, of course, that I do, I said, well, let me pray about it and get back to you in a few days because I really want to make sure That I'm hearing from God Because I already have so much on my plate So I came home and I talked to my husband about it And then we prayed about it for a few days And um, I decided to run And that's how I landed on our village board We started um, campaigning, I think Sometime in late December of 2006, it might have even been November, but I was elected to my first term in April of 2007. And when me and the new mayor won, two people on our team lost the election. So that meant we went into a very contentious situation because the previous board still had four people on it. So it's actually seven people on Hanover Parks Board, six trustees and uh, a mayor. So technically there were five trustees on that board from the previous administration. So we beat the person who was sitting as acting mayor. Um, but because they had five people that were still on that board, we had a real contentious two-year period. Everything that we tried to do, even remotely, took forever, and pretty much they fought us tooth and nail. Now, if you look at my Facebook friends, mostly all of the contentious members <laughs> are my Facebook friends now because over the years um, what they've learned about me is although they judged me, which people do all the time, based on the connection that I had, which led me there. The mayor and I are totally different, and he's still our current mayor. And so it took them a while to really begin to learn and trust that my heart was only to do the right thing for the people of Hanover Park. It was never to, um, you know, just make decisions that were arbitrary or things that, wasn't in the best interest of these people and sometimes it happens that way but over the last couple of years that i served on the board we were able to get some things done but partially that was because when the next election came in 2009 our entire slate won that election so that meant that we were in total control but like i said over time once they realized that i wasn't their enemy per se i really just wanted to do the right thing uh we are all you know, began to have decent conversations and be able to really get some things done because I think those first two years, we got very little done other than a bunch of conflict and confusion on a consistent basis, and it was quite stressful for a minute. You know, every meeting was a debate. Every meeting was hot. Every meeting was contentious, and um, even one of those meetings, I just walked out because I just felt like it was just too much foolishness going on, and I just I just have a low tolerance for foolishness, so yeah it's an elected position and it was it was a great learning experience um don't know what i'm gonna do in the next coming years. I was anticipating challenging the mayor in the twenty yeah this election had just passed in twenty thirteen but so many other things were going on in my life at the time, particularly now with a two year old it just wasn't just wasn't the 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 best thing for my family at this point. So we'll see where
0: life takes me in the future with politics.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. What type of responsibilities does a deputy mayor hold?
3: Well, initially, I had all the same responsibilities that I had as a trustee, which was that of a policymaker and a legislator. Um, All of the board, um, not the board, all of the, the senior managers in the village reported to us so the um, village manager had about 10 people on his staff. So pretty much, we were responsible for all the legislative pieces in regards to that. We created the strategy. They go out and they implement it. Uh, we managed the budget, which I think is about 36 billion, or sorry, 36 million dollars. Hanover Park really is set up financially well, and that's not due to my administration or the administration now, but for many, many years, probably like 25 when other villages were probably spending when they should have been saving, the administrative teams that we had in place at that point were really good about saving. So we've always been in a good financial position. And even when other villages started laying off in 2008 because of the crisis, we didn't lay off. We we only laid off after the 2009 election, and that was because we wanted to remove some people from administration who we didn't feel could go in the direction that we were going to
0: take it in. So um you you mentioned that you guys have a town manager that means that Hanover Park is unincorporated.
3: No, we are we're a incorporated village. We weren't for many years um but yeah, we've been we're a corporation. So we've been incorporated for many years now. Yes, we are. We just have a weak form of uh mayoral presence and a strong management presence.
0: Mm. Okay, so they have both a manager, a, a town manager, as well as a mayor.
3: Yeah, we have a village manager. So Chicago is a good example of a strong mayoral form of leadership. They have a different type structure. It escapes me right now. But we're a weak form of mayor structure, which means that, um, whereas Rahm Emanuel probably has a lot more, mmm, mmm, Mm-hmm. it's just run different king don't make me tell you the differences right now because it escapes me but they have a strong form of mayoral government we have a weak form so we literally go into village hall probably twice a month on the first and third Thursdays now because we do other stuff out in the community working with people we have all these committees on average most of us are there at least once a week for the most part but like in the city of Chicago Obama Manuel is there every day now I there currently because he retired probably within the second year of our term. He's probably there a little more now than most of the other trustees because most of them work but for the most part we have um, administrators and people in the village who we tell them what we want done, what we want to happen and they go out and they do it for us. So they actually do the work.
0: Okay. 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 So that that's a pretty powerful Position to be in, especially as a female, and especially being in the northwest suburbs of Illinois. Um, that 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 was a very empowering uh, position for you to have. Going through the things that you went through in your youth, how did you activate? And and I'm I'm playing on words from one of the chapters in your book that just it, I just. It just came to me. How did you activate the power within yourself to be able to make such a, a drastic transition?
3: Yeah. Well, here's the thing that most people may not realize. For me, it wasn't really a drastic transition. It was me changing over time, right? And I think that the, um, the first change came when I moved into this association and started to experience fines and different things like that because of, you know, me being vocal or questioning their authority on certain things. So that was the start for me. And when I first ran for um, board of directors in this in this association, oh, man, it was a very contentious um, race. And at the time, the board was all male and they were all Caucasian. So we didn't have one person of color and no women on this board. So a lot of the decisions they made were very hard and drastic in nature. So imagine when I started questioning some of their um, antics how it escalated for me. So I think that was the beginning of a shaping of the new me, of a person who was coming out and learning her own self and learning her own voice. But what I will tell you is that when I have spoken to my uncles and aunts and to my cousin, this person that you see today always lived on the inside of me because until – those bad things happened to me. This is the person that most of them saw. They said I was talkative, mm-hmm. I was happy, I was involved in a lot of stuff. I was just, I was a real social, social butterfly. Okay, but because of all that stuff happen happening to me, it just really suppressed the person that I was, and just because I couldn't trust anybody, it just made me very deep down within myself. So I think my transformation back into who I was eventually going to become started happening over time. And the first contentious was with this board. And then seeing over a period of time how if people stand up to things that aren't right, even though it's hard and it's difficult and it feels like you may crack under pressure, if you just continue to press even though at some point you may be left standing all by yourself, that it will make you stronger, it will make you better, and it will make you wiser. So that was my kind of initial, you know, moving out of this little shell into the community activist that you see today. So then after that, of course, getting involved in the community, challenging some things, making things happen, and then when I ran for the board, being faced uh, with those challenges that came with that. At one point, the current mayor joked and said, what are these people doing, running a race like we're in Chicago someplace? But for me, because he had been dealing with them for like 20 years before, because his wife was the village clerk, which was a paid position at Village Hall, they had been on this team with these folks for 20-plus years, right? So they started to see another side to these people that they had never saw before, and it became a very nasty election. And a lot of times when I would go out and read the newspaper or the blogs or then their platform material that they would share with people, dang, they were coming at my head. (laughs) I mean, they were like, well, why would you want your kid to learn anything from this person? She had a kid when she was uh, XYZ age and blah, 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 and I'm like thinking, Oh, my God, if you can't find anything but something that's 20 years old, okay, fine, go for it. But I think all of those things together and then being put in, put in different situations that you learn from the book on my job, just having aha moments and seeing things even at work that I thought, hmm, you need to talk about, I think it's made me who I am today. But I don't think it just happened. I don't think it was drastic. I think it was just me stepping out when the opportunities presented themselves to become a different person. But it was difficult, King. I tell you, it was very difficult.
0: So what gave you the strength to now release this book after having gone under attack for becoming a public figure? um where where did you draw the strength from to wanna expose your life story after having been under attack like that that's that's that was a very bold move to make,
3: yeah, well, it was. It was was difficult. And like I said, it took months and months and months of me talking to myself and talking to other people. But at the end of the day, I realized it was something that I needed to do. I told you, when I first started writing this book, it had one focus to help teen mothers know that their situations could change and they could make a life better for them and their children and that it would not always be the same unless they wanted it to. That was my singular focus. That only goals I had for releasing this book once I saw where this book was going, then of course that spurred some other conversations and me having conversations with my friends about you know how I was feeling and the things that were going on on the inside of me so it's not been easy, but I tell you the contentious race that I had when running for office in this association, the contentious crap that I faced when running for office as an elected official, the year or two of stress that I had with dealing with people who didn't want me there just because of who my affiliation was with, I think it has prepared me for the contention that I now face with this book, particularly from, you know one person in my family who wants to live in la-la land and act like the things that I've outlined never happened. But at the end of the day, King, what I've always decided to do and what I intend to live by is to do the right thing no matter what. And as long as I can do the right thing and go to sleep every night, I'm happy. And those are the only simple goals I have is to always do the right thing. And what I've learned through releasing these books or releasing this book is a lot of people have been helped. You wouldn't imagine how many notes I've gotten from people who've gone through things. I mean, when it first became public, I received a note, well, actually, when I was on tour in Mississippi before it went public, one of my little sister's friends got a hold of a manuscript, and they sent me a note immediately. And they talked about how, as they read this manuscript, how they walked and cried. And they used like six other adjectives, whereas... They felt like my story was so similar to theirs. But at the end of the day, by them reading this story, they got the strength and the courage to get back up and try again. It's been some things in their life that they've wanted to do a lot of times for a long time, but fear has had them stagnated and bound, and they decided that they were going to make some real serious changes in their lives over the next few months and to do something that they've wanted to do forever. And you would not believe how many notes and phone calls that I get with people telling me how much of an inspiration that I am to them. So even though I still face a little contention um, from one person in my family, it makes it all worth it to know that people have been helped By me telling my story And not only that people have been helped But that I've been helped through this process also Because had Katie not continued to press me in this area King, I can guarantee you That we would not even be having this discussion today Because it's something that I never, ever wanted to talk about It's something that I never, ever wanted the world to know Had happened
0: to me Hmm Well, I I thank you very much for sharing these experiences with us today. I know for a fact that someone has been helped throughout the process of this conversation and the archives will be there so that many more people can be helped. How do you go about doing book signings and things like that? If someone was interested in, um, because I'm getting several different text messages and inboxes on Facebook asking me questions for you. If someone was interested in doing a, a book signing with you or for you, how would that how would that work? How does that go about?
3: Well, they have a couple of ways that they can reach me. Uh, they can go to my website. They can fill out a form there. It will connect them directly to me, or they can send me an email to trusteecarter.com, at yahoo.com, and in turn, what I'll do is I'll send it to the communications team that's responsible for their area of work. What I've done is I have three communications teams that are on my team. The number one communications person is 2020 Communications out of Chicago. The president is Glenn Murray, and he handles... A lot of my engagements, particularly for nonprofits and churches and then small businesses, roundtable companies, the company that published this book, I am a part of their speakers bureau. I recommend that business people use them uh, strictly as their area for connection only because of the cost and everything that's associated uh, with going that route. For people who may just be church or ministry-related, they can contact ND Enterprises out of Houston, Texas. Uh, And Chanel Douglas is the chairman and uh, owner, and she schedules all of my ministry and uh, church-related activities for me. But if they want a simple version, they can just go to the website, fill out a form. But what I do recommend is if someone does not get back to them within 24 hours, to go ahead and send me another follow-up email because sometimes what I'm noticing is depending on where uh, things are coming from, sometimes they're going into junk mail or my team is not receiving them. And I want to make sure that everyone who wants me to um, be at their event or to support them in some way that we can get that done for them. So again, my communications teams are as follows. 2020 out of Chicago, Glenn Murray, he's the head of that organization, and he handles a lot of my engagements in regards to nonprofits, small businesses, and ministries. Please contact them. They will make sure everything happens for you. Uh, Roundtable Publishing, people who have medium and large size businesses, please contact them because a lot of times what comes with that is formal contracts, blah, 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 blah. Roundtable Companies is the place for you. Corey Michael Blake is the publisher and CEO there. For churches and nonprofits, I recommend you contact Indy Enterprises out of Houston, Texas. Chanel Douglas is the CEO there, and she handles churches and ministries for me. At the end of the day, if you don't get a response back from my communications team within 24 hours, please send me a direct email to Trusty Carter T-R-U-S-T-E-E carter at yahoo.com because if you have a need for me to be at your next event, I'd be honored and humbled to come, but I need to make sure that we receive your request in a timely fashion. And I usually that's, that's schedule good. four weeks out.
0: Mm-hmm. That's, that's good information. And do you... Are those um, contacts also available for you to do public speaking events and things of that nature?
3: Yes, yes. Okay. And so all three of them handle the segments that I told you, and they can take care of all of that. But like I said, if for some reason people are not getting their stuff answered like they want, just to contact me directly, and I'll make sure it gets to the right person on my team to help. There's no problem at all.
0: Okay, as we as we wind down the interview, I told you that the time goes much quicker than we imagine it would go. I haven't nearly covered as much ground as I would have liked to have to cover with you. But one of the things that I would like to get out is what does it take to get a book from in your head, the thoughts in your head, to actually uh, public published like like you have right now on Amazon.com.
3: Well, I think what I'd recommend is to hire an expert <laughs> because as we talked earlier, I was writing for 10-plus years. When Trouble Finds You was just released in May, May 27th of this year. But I have been writing that book for over 12 years at this point. The first title with the manuscript I have on You Can Make It to is back in 2000. But what I can tell you is if you hire an expert, they will help make sure that you don't miss any of the critical key components when you're releasing your information to the market. What I've also learned is a lot of times these publishing companies, they can tell when a manuscript is something that's been self-published and released by someone just because the quality isn't generally as high as it needs to be. And what I would recommend is if you don't have the skills and expertise behind you to do something like this, to so call an expert because at the end of the day, it will save you a lot of time, effort, and energy. And I'm happy uh, with what we've created, but what I can tell you is that it would not have been this great without me bringing in an expert creative team to help me complete this. Even if you look at the cover on When Trouble Finds You versus the cover that I had designed myself on You Can Make It Too, you can tell that professionals who are in the second version versus the first. So I recommend that they hire someone. The other thing that Katie did for me, who's my executive editor, is during the interviewing process, she really asked the difficult and tough questions, and she really made you think about what it is you were trying to do, what was your purpose behind it, and what outcome did you want from it. And so from this, we created an outline that was probably four or five pages long. In this outline, we went chapter by chapter of the things that we thought we would cover in each chapter, and we made sure that they tied and they flowed the way that they should have. And by her doing that, now, things change, particularly for me, because when we got finished with Chapter 1 and Chapter 2, I realized that I had left out a key component of one of the transitions that I had made in my life, so then we had to go back and recraft and restructure Uh, portions of chapter one and portions of chapter two but had I not had the experts available to me the product that you probably would have seen Anthony would be very different from what you see today and I can only tell you that from my experience it's a tough project to do you have I think Mr. Blake who's the publisher at Roundtable Company says something like 500,000 moving pieces when you're writing a book at any time, there are so many things that have to be done that People like us may never even think about from the cover design, the interior formatting, what does the back look like, where do you purchase your graphic arts from. I mean, it's just a lot of stuff to do, and I'll tell you this funny story because I know we're going to be closing shortly, but the reason why it's important to have experts working for you is because when we were designing the cover, when I realized that the name of the book was going to change and I needed some other graphics based on what I had before, I hired this young guy out of North Carolina only because, you know, I like to be inclusive and diverse in everything that I do, and so I wanted someone on my team um, that was a person of color to do a specific part of this project for me. Now, get this. The young guy went out, created a cover. I was in love with it, King. I was in love with it. When I say in love, I mean in love with it. Sent it over to Roundtable Publishing, for them to incorporate it in everything that we were doing, guess what? The young fella had not purchased the graphics for the pictures, and so (laughs) when we got to the end of it, I could have gotten sued because several pictures on it could not be licensed for resale, okay? So... That's why it's important that you have experts working with you so that these kinds of things wouldn't happen. So it, it it it's okay. I love the color the cover that you're looking at today, but it wasn't the original one that I had picked and the reason why is because the pictures that the young guy sourced for me could not be published because they were not available for uh commercial use and they couldn't be released to the public. So isn't that interesting? But
0: those are things that Absolutely. you never would think about. Mhm. Mhm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Um, we have about twelve minutes left before the interview will be over. Um, someone hit me on Facebook inbox asking if you do any type of mentorship program. If you have any job resources for young ladies who have had, who have gone through early pregnancy and have gotten themselves to a point where they are now just becoming to function normally in society, if you have any information that could be useful to them, they would appreciate that.
3: Yeah, I definitely would need to know more, King, about what they're trying to do. I need to try to figure out where their skill uh, assessment level is, because, you know, specifically I'm in high tech, uh, but I have connections all over, but... Me saying that I mean if you're in high tech a lot of times we require people with uh college educations um you know a certain amount of experience blah 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 blah, so I really would need to know more from them, so if they want to go over to the when trouble find you page and send send us a message. I'll probably get back to them um, later on this evening because I really need to know what it is they're trying to do, where they're at in their career to see how we might be able to help them. But they do have hope. It's not too late. It's never over. Now, what I will tell people is um, it's not going to be easy because anything in life, my whole philosophy has been if there's no struggle, there's no real progress. So a lot of times what we want takes a lot of diligence, a lot of effort, and a lot of time. And sometimes when we're coming from um, a place of disadvantage, it may even take us a little more to get ahead. I tell some of my friends, because I didn't make the right choices when I was younger, not going directly into college or actually going into college but dropping out after the first semester and then not going back until I was 25 years old, my friends and my network who grew up with me came. Some of them are making two hundred three hundred, and four hundred thousand dollars a year. They are so far ahead of me in the salary range until it's like oh, my God, I am so happy for them. But if I had done the right thing, that could have been my life too. But since I didn't, now I'm behind them by several hundred thousand dollars a year, which is okay. I'm happy with my life. I love my life. It's my life. I probably wouldn't change it at this point for anything. But my whole reason in sharing that is because I really don't think as black people, we realize just how much money it is to be made out here, if we do the right thing, find the right connections, it' will position us in a place that will help not only us but generations to come. But the other thing they can do um King, is on your um Facebook page about ten hours ago, you released one of my promotional collaterals, and at the bottom, we talked about how people can provide mentoring for students. Uh So if they want to go and look at that piece of the component and just send me some idea of what they're looking for and what they need, I'm happy to help. And specifically depending on how old or what age range this young lady is, at the same time that I release When Trouble Finds You, this doesn't get a whole lot of publicity, but over the next few months it will is I've also created a workbook. But the workbook was really designed more for young people in grades 8 through 12, to help them be able to find their way in the world and not have to go through so many changes like so many people that I know. So in that workbook, we not only take them through who they are, who they were born into, where they get their energy from, what are the different types of things that they like, and what would they like their future to use. We have what they would like their future to look like. We actually have assessment tools in this book that will help them assess who they are and where they would probably feel more comfortable in the workforce. So I do um, encourage people who may have young people in this age range, and I even think some college folks could use this also, to go and take a look at that workbook and see how it might help them to be better because it's going to be the one thing that I require for people who join the mentorship programs that we're going to be starting um, soon is to have a copy of that workbook and to go through it because a lot of questions that they may have will probably be answered right through that tool, which is why we created it. So thank her so much for her question, King. If we can help her, we most certainly
0: will. Okay. That's 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 wonderful. Um, As we wind down, is there anything that you would like to share that we haven't covered so far?
3: Well, I think the only thing that I'd like to say as we wrap up today is, first of all, thank you all so much for joining us this evening. I really have had an enjoyable time sharing who I am, where I've been, and where I've came from with all of you. I only hope and pray that you can take away something from this conversation that makes your life better as well as the people around you. More than anything, I want you to know that it's not where you've been or where you've come from or who your parents are that determines who you are and where you're going. I really hope that from this conversation you leave with you can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. All you have to do is get disciplined and focused and figure out what it is you need to do to get you to where you want to be. There is nothing in life that is too hard for you to overcome. The only limits we have in life are the ones we create for ourselves. So I encourage you to take the next step and really try to figure out if you're still struggling in this area. is who you are and where you want to be. And don't be in a rush to get there because the person that you've heard King talk about tonight wasn't a person that was developed overnight it's taken years for me to become who i am today it's taken years for me to transition from different areas in my life to be who i am today and i would be serving you a disadvantage if i told you that it didn't take hard work and dedication and most importantly connections and sponsors, and a lot of times as black people, we think, oh, I can just go to work and put my head down, and good things are going to happen, people are going to see me working, and I'm going to get ahead. Yeah, part of that is true, but the other part is more than anything, we need connections. We need people behind us who support us, and guess what? If those people aren't in your network, then go out and find some who are. And a lot of times I know we think that we can't go beyond our borders or we can't go beyond the people that we know. But, yes, we can. If we have people in our lives who are not helping us get to the next level or to the next dimension or where we should go, we need to cut those people out of our lives and find people in our lives that will help us to grow and to go to the next level. Never be afraid of change because change happens every day. And in the words of Bishop Glenn Miller from Life Center in Bellwood, Illinois, he tells us the only thing that doesn't change are things that don't grow. So get comfortable with change. Because change happens every day, all day, and it will continue to happen. So embrace it and become who you want to be.
0: Hmm. That was beautiful. There is so much ground that we did not cover that your book discusses. Um, I, I appreciate you sharing your book with me. I'm not very much of a book reader. Uh, I do read mm-hmm. a lot, um, but there was just something about this book that really captivated my attention, and it was a for, it, it was more like, "How dare you not read this?" then, you know, how can I how can I focus long enough to actually understand what's going on. There is so much ground covered in your book, especially for not even just black women, but even black men, um, can get something out of this book and, and I highly recommend it. We will be promoting the book throughout the week as we advertise the show. Um so I, I appreciate the book and you have always been even before I, I I was aware of the book and, you know, the experiences that you have undergone, you have always been someone special to me, and I have always appreciated the support that you have given me. So I can only imagine what someone who has gone through what you have gone through can receive from you if they just reach out to you and open up because you have been a, very much an angel to me. Um, Up until this point And I just wanted to thank you For coming on to the show And sharing this with us I'm sure we'll get a lot of feedback And I will forward the information Over to you Um, I just I, I pray that God blesses you And continues to You know Make a difference in your life And I just want to thank you So much for doing this It was a pleasure
3: It was my pleasure to be here And I thank you And I thank everyone For listening today
0: yeah, this this was um this was a blessing. I I didn't expect um for it to be as intense as it as it turned out to be. I meant to move a little faster and cover more ground, but when you opened up and started sharing about your experiences, it really, you know, took a different turn than what I intended it to be. But I appreciate that and. I know that someone was blessed from this today. As a matter of fact, my co-host who usually does the show with me, Brandy Jackson, is busy um, with the previous engagement, but she texts me in the middle of your interview like, oh, my God, Anthony, I have to step away from work for a second because I'm over here in tears right now from, from listening to her interview. So I know for a fact that it touched some people's hearts. And, you know, I just want to thank you for sharing. I know that that wasn't easy but it's, it's greatly appreciated, and you know, may God continue to bless you. I, I appreciate you, you doing this a lot.
3: Thank you. And you know, have me back sometime. I'd be happy to come and share again.
0: Absolutely. We um we may have some information coming to you here shortly about doing a book signing. Um, because there was a serious there was a serious. Hello. Oh, she hung
1: up.
0: Okay, sorry for that interruption. My my call drops on the line, but we just want to thank um Lady Tony Carter for sharing with us today. And being a part of the show, and it was just uh, a blessing um, to be a part of this today. And I just want to thank everybody for listening. Continue to support the Rook show as we have at least two more weeks on our Women of Power series. We will be sharing with you a few more other very interesting people. Coming up here within the month of January, um thank everybody and have a good evening. <laughs>
2: Let them be the seed that squeeze through the crease in the concrete street. We sleep to the one that keeps peace. May you meet no defeat. Blow the heat on the beat. Know. Sorrows and grief to the chief. Who deceives through the deep. May you sleep in the deep. Lava. Firebomb your to send to your feet. No, 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 I don't, yeah. on the concrete, concrete tree, concrete tree, oh. Oh. sidewalk, oh. Tree. Oh. sidewalk oh. tree, hardwood floor, oh. oh. them oh. oh. say life is hard like concrete it's yeah. a jungle out the road and everyone see, no youth watch them that leave. when you go out in the world I pray you make it home in one piece, cause life is hard in the concrete, so that's why we chant with the heart no sheep to this slaughter, so no, 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 no wait, It's so sweet, that's why I'm hustling in these streets. I'm still praying for the ones with you no food, food, food to eat. Oh God, never let it see me. Dreaming of the concrete. Never saw himself dreaming, but he called itself leaving. So he brought himself deep into the eye, wide focused on the sky he's in. Flew a thousand demons screaming, hurricane! There will be no concrete destiny for me. God never let it be no concrete destiny for me. This ain't sweet. That's why I'm hustling and I need sweet. I'm still praying for the ones with no food to eat. Oh God, never let it be. The concrete, concrete dream. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. be me with a concrete dream. Never will it. Never it.
3: You're listening to The Rook Live on the Keys
1: 107 Network.
3: Listening to The Rook live on the Keys 107 Network.